This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Billy Sunday Burt was now locked away in Marion Federal Penitentiary in Marion, Illinois, which was, at the time, the most secure prison in the country. When Alcatraz closed in the late 60s, the inmates housed there were moved to Marion. The prison contained the country's most dangerous criminals and murderers. The children prayed, the preacher preached, Time and mercy is out of your reach. That's where my life really changed. That's where I I think, looking back on it, that I had to become Billy Burt because it was just too awful for Billy Burt to go away. He was such a great man in my mind that I had to, I had this romantic view of it all. As the Burt family tried to adjust to the fact that their patriarch would spend his remaining days on death row, waiting out his eventual death by electric chair, the reality slowly began to set in with Stoney. His father, his friend, his hero, was gone. From Imperative Entertainment, this is In the Red Clay. it soon became clear that Billy Burt would never return home again. The family would visit Burt when they could in prison, and I asked Stoney to tell me about the first time he ever went to visit his father on death row. No, we'll forget it. It's hard to do. I can, uh, you know, Alto, Reedsville, they're the toughest state prisons there are. But this federal prison was a whole new ball game. Everything was so high tech. They was not only... Two doors to go through. There were six doors to go through. You were so trapped if you got in there and tried some shit. And for the first time I'd ever seen, there was glass that thick. And the telephone didn't go phone to phone. It was integrated through the system. You know you're being recorded. And when you talked, it kind of sounded like Edison's first uh, phonograph, you know, that, that, that tweaky. And it was just so impersonal. But yeah, it was so bittersweet to have dead there in front of you and talking. So it was, it was just a whole new ball game. It was just, I knew in my mind that I would very seldom be able to see him. Stoney would hear from his father firsthand what life was like in a maximum security federal prison. And as you can imagine, it isn't a life meant for the faint of heart. I never had to sit on a uh, 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 a commode that lined 19 long, that far apart, and use a restroom with 19 other people. I never considered having to be in a shower the size of one of these beds and have 20 nozzles on it and everybody in there bunched up together and at least half of them with a damn pitcher of the Playboy magazine plastered against the wall of the water, jacking their damn dick to that. It's like being plunged into Mars or something. And that's prison life. 
Despite seeing what life in prison would be like, Stoney was still hell-bent on taking the place of his father and continuing on the legacy he had created with the Dixie Mafia. Now, by this time, I was doing black pills. It was a common thing. I didn't go to Mexico to get them. By this time, you give them to doctors. It was the exact same thing. I had gotten a hold of a prescription of, they were called bioamphetamine at the drugstore. So here I am, 14 years old, visiting through glass, and me and he was such good friends. Caught my mother not look how he did look here. And I showed him a prescription. He read it. Boy, face turned white. I see sickness in it. Ah, no, son. No. Ah, damn, get that. Get away from that shit. But I thought he was going to say, Way to go, you know, get him to me. I thought we were still partying. And he didn't do it in a way that made me feel bad. He just done it in a way that I could see, looking back on it, it made me just sick to the heart of his soul that he left his son thinking that way. That is when I realized he was gone. That's when I seen for the first time ever in his eyes the regret and the influence he left on me. Billy's reaction to seeing that his beloved son, the one who idolized him, had begun to follow in his footsteps and started taking the black pills, both infuriated and saddened him. Since his incarceration, for the first time in nearly a decade, Billy was not on pills and had a clear head. He could now plainly see how his actions had spawned a desire for his young son to follow in his footsteps. And it broke his heart. How could he have gotten so mixed up in his own life that he hadn't seen this sooner? How could he have been so blind? We can only imagine the thoughts that must have plagued Billy, knowing that he could do no more than sit back and watch his son, his pride and joy, make the same mistakes he had. And maybe this was part of Billy's punishment. And so, this became their life. I would write him every day. I would tell him what was going on. Sending letters to each other, driving hundreds of miles from Georgia to Illinois for a series of short, supervised visits through two inches of bulletproof glass, with every word they said being monitored and recorded. But Billy's reputation, even in the toughest prison in America, was something even the prison warden couldn't deal with. Within just a few years of being in Marion, Billy killed two men in the prison shower stall for trying to extort a friend of his who was up for parole. The warden knew the only way to deal with Bert was to commute his sentence to a Georgia state prison where Bert's execution would be carried out much sooner. They said, shit with this. They turned him over to the state of Georgia. Not for any other reason than they could go ahead and get him executed because they had a death sentence waiting. So after only three years, they commuted it and gave him to Georgia. Best thing they've ever done as far as our relationship because then we could go to Reedsville, we could take him food, we could sit there, hug and kiss and, you know, have camaraderie. But those three years he was there was the most uh, it hit home that I would never have him again free while he was in Maryland. And when he got to Reedsville, even though it was so much better, 
I never had a hope of having any in on the street. I knew it. And Billy's reputation in the Georgia prison system was basically be his friend or stay the hell away from him. And certainly never cross him. He was the most dangerous man on death row. The inmates and the guards knew all too well who he was and what he was capable of. And he would continue to prove that. Like when he intervened as two inmates, the Isaac brothers, attempted to kill a man Billy had befriended in prison. They were going to kill the man simply because of the color of his skin. And Bert wasn't having it. Uh, He's a black guy. He was going to kill him just because he was black. Well, my father put a stop to it. Hell no. They were all scared to death of my father. Everybody on death row because, let's face it, Billy Burton didn't shoot blanks. He just didn't kill one person while he was on dope. This man was the ass man, you know? So when he told all day boys, no, y'all ain't killing that damn boy just because he's black. End of story. Billy's jailhouse friend was released 10 years later, having been found to not be guilty of the crime he was accused of that landed him on death row. He later publicly thanked Bert in a newspaper article. He said, he did save my life from the all-day boys who were going to kill me just for the color of my skin. And I'll always be grateful to him for that. And when Stoney told me this story, I guess it touched a nerve in both of us. I'll confess that when I first met Stoney and heard pieces of his father's story and of the Dixie Mafia, I wondered if this was something I wanted to be a part of. I questioned where this story would go, and if it would be something that I was comfortable telling. After all, the word Dixie itself just resonates with thoughts of the Old South, and anyone living in the 21st century can't hear Old South without racial prejudices and injustices coming to mind, because it's reality. But the more I learned about Billy Burt and his life, the way he was raised, and the way he carried himself as a man and a father, my concerns faded. Stoney and I talked candidly about this. My dad wasn't racist. He called black people sir just as much as he would white. He looked down on no man. And then Stoney shares with me a touching story that I think shows, for what it's worth, the very sincere and compassionate side of his father. A side Stoney has mentioned time and time again, but that we've seen very little of. In a letter to Stoney, Billy tells the story of a young, mentally handicapped inmate named Jerome Bowden, whose cell was next to his. After hearing it, my perception of Billy Burt may have changed just a bit. Jerome Bowder was a black guy who had the mentality of me when I was 11. Now, Daddy was a good storyteller, and he recognized this kid was mentally retarded. And he took up with him because he just—he was just a fun-loving little kid. Now, my daddy would tell stories to some of these prisoners like him. Jerome Butter kept coming close to the damn death penalty, and Daddy noticed he was retarded. And Daddy had done fell in love with the boy. He done—he done fell in love with this kid. His heart, his compassion. He knowed that God did not bless this kid with a full deck. And my daddy would tell him stories. You know, he used to tell me Jack the Beanstalk this story. Well, 
he made up a story about a guy named Johnny Polk. And Johnny Polk was a hero who, uh, he's a black guy, who led a, a revolt against something other than his town. And uh, I was a wonderful story. My dad was a wonderful bullshitter. And he gave that story to Johnny Polk. You know, that was him drawn about her. And Johnny Pope would ask him every night to read that story to him because he was Johnny Pope. Billy had an affection for 24-year-old Jerome Bowden, who Stoney refers to as Bowder. The story of Johnny Polk that Billy made up was to put the young man's mind at ease as he waited for his inevitable electrocution. Jerome was the hero of the story and asked Billy to tell it to him every day. That's the mentality this kid had. And then he said, oh, I wish I never wrote that down story because I had to read it to him every fucking night. Night before he went to the lecture, Jerome said, uh, Bert, you believe in the Bible? He said, I started to just tell the kid, hell no, son, when you're gone, you're gone. But he didn't have a heart to. Them kids going to die next morning. I yelled, Jerome, I believe in the Bible. He said, you believe anybody be saved? He said, yes, Jerome, I do. He Billy, you got a Bible? He said, no, Jerome, I ain't got a Bible. But I'll see if I can get you one. Well, he got it one from the next guy down. He said, worst mistake I ever made. He pulled me up them down bars every 10 minutes. Billy, what this word mean? Billy, what that word mean? He said, but, you know, he's going to die the next day. I'd go up there and I, he said, well, he got quiet for about two hours. And all of a sudden, he called me to the bars. He was real solemn. And he said, Billy, now I've read this Bible best I can. Hey, Billy, they don't take black folks into heaven. All that go to heaven is Jews. And then he said, Jerome, son, I don't know much about the Bible, but don't say that. Give me a Bible and I'll find you a place. He said, I got lucky with the Bible. I spent it take me all night. He said, the first down passage I turned to, there it was, John 3.16. And I called, I said, look at that, Jerome. It say, whoever believe. It don't say black, white, don't say nothing. Whoever believed, Jerome. He said, it must have satisfied him because of them kid that bugged me no more that night. He said, but I wish he were here to bug me right now. Well, they come got Jerome. And when he did, he handed Daddy back the Bible. And he smiled real big and he said, Bert, I read all of the New Testament last night. And Daddy said, Boy, that's good, Jerome. That's real good. He said it just like he was just happy as he could be. And as that kid walked down away, he said he'd rather have been him. It just, it was just so wrong. The guard come by about two hours later and told him Jerome had had to stay. And then he says in the letter, he says, if he makes it two more hours, he's got it made because the death won't run out. They have to go through this shit again. Maybe he, this kid has found some luck. Next thing the letter says is, old man, about 30 minutes ago, the kid headed your way. His name is Jerome Butter, but he liked to be called Johnny Pope. The old man, give him a break. Hell, he read your damn book the last night he was on this earth. And he damn sure didn't get a break while he was here. Now, don't make a liar out of me, for I told him if he read your book, it's a chance for him being saved. 
Stoney shared with me another letter that his father had written just before Jerome's execution. Midnight, 7-17-1986. I'm sitting here in the fucked up little cell. Can't go to sleep. The warden just set a date for a kid here on death row, one week from now. What bothered me, the kid don't have sense enough to understand what is about to happen to him. But they grieve more over that young boy than anybody on death row he ever had to walk down the aisle. And he up many Sean, and I'll never tell how he done it, but he had a way of helping him walk down there and let him be a man, and I helped him do it. I wasn't sure what Stoney meant in saying his father helped people walk down the aisle on death row. It reminded me of movies like The Green Mile or Dead Man Walking. When a man has to walk from his cell to lecture, he either crumbles or walks like a man. My dad had a way of helping him walk like a man, and he had me to help him do that. That's all I'll tell you. I can only guess this has something to do with black pills, but maybe some things are better left unsaid. Stoney shared with me the actual letter his father wrote to young Johnny Polk. Here's a short passage from that letter, never shared before now. Jerome, you remind me of a black kid I knew in my hometown back in 1951. His name was Johnny Polk. I'd be damned, Jerome, if you don't look just like Johnny. You could pass for his twin, and if I didn't know better, when I first saw you, I would have bet my last dollar that you were Johnny Polk himself. In the case of Jerome Bowden, people protested the execution of a mentally handicapped young man. In fact, most people believe he never committed the murder he was accused of, and he signed a confession without knowing what it really meant. The case even drew protest from music icons like Sting and U2, and to this day, the state of Georgia will not release the results of Bowden's mental exam, though it's believed his IQ was just 59. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Billy, over the years, adjusted to life on death row the best he could. Between family visits, he occupied his time reading and writing letters to Stoney. 
He even learned to crochet and would send those small, odd stuffed animals and picture frames to the family at home. Anything to pass the time. Because at the end of the day, when the prison lights go out, you're left with nothing but your thoughts. And a man's thoughts and memories can drive him mad. Billy began to reflect deeply on his life and the mistakes he made. Stoney shares a story his father told while in prison about a dream he had shortly after he killed for the first time, protecting a woman from being raped. He says, strange thing happened to me. I'm laying in there in the bed, and I wasn't dreaming. And this thing come to the door, and he said, it was just a beautiful, he said, it was Jesus Christ who it was, I knew it. He said, I was laying here like this, and he come up over me, and he was, he held his hand down to me. And I got it in my mind that I believe it was after he killed them two men, because God knows your heart. He didn't kill them out of malice. He killed them because they wasn't going to rape it, that woman in front of him. He said, and all I had to do was reach to take that hand, but didn't do it. He said, well, your mama woke up, and I told her. And she asked me, honey, why, why didn't you do it? And he said, I don't know. He said, but that's sort of funny. I've always wondered about that. And he said, the next night... And I believe if I took a hand, I wouldn't have had this dream. But it again, it wasn't a dream, son. It was real. He said, a form come to the door there at the bedroom. It wasn't like Jesus. Jesus was just a beautiful thing. Just, just no doubt. This was the devil. He had no face. But the feeling of dread that come over you, the way you felt, you know it was the devil. And it was just an awful thing. He said it had to be the devil because it was just so awful and the feeling that come over you just so awful. It just had to be the devil. He said, this thing come in here and grabbed Stoney and between me and his mother and took off out the door. He said, I jumped up butt naked and run him out the door, down the hall and out into the driveway and into the road. Just raising hell. And he was gone with Stoney. Mama Run out the door. Honey, honey, what's wrong with you? He said, the damn devil's got Stoney. She said, honey, you have to be dreaming. Stoney's in here in the bed. She got me calmed down, walked back in there, and there was Stoney laying in the bed. But now that has stuck with me, and I don't know why. And I believe that if I took that hand the night before when he handed it down to me, I never had that dream. Another funny thing about this is before this happened, I could be riding that road and I could see a bad car wreck and some people killed, or I could be in church or granny or grandpa and their preacher be preaching a good sermon and I'd get cold chills. If I seen somebody dead in a car wreck, I'd get cold chills. But after I refused to take that hand, I never got that feeling no more. I felt nothing. And I don't know what it means, don't know how to explain it. Maybe this was a message sent to a young Billy Burt from God, giving him a chance to see what was to come if he didn't take his hand. It seems that the message Billy received was that not only might the devil take his soul, but the soul of Stoney too. 
and it seemed that warning might be coming to fruition. I immediately picked that ball up and became him. I was robbing everything that was to rob. I robbed every store he robbed. I pulled armed robbers. I'd done everything but home invasion or murder. Never hurt nobody. My father's number one goal was take care of his family. And what I do, my number one goal was being him and take care of his family. And I did. And I lived large. And I didn't respect money. And I ended up age 17 and a half with 27 fucking years for it. And I don't feel stupid. Because it's understandable for a kid to be stupid. If I have a time to go over again, know what I know now, I change. But not know what I know now, I do the same damn thing. Because Billy Burt was someone you count on. He would, he would take care of his family and people. And I want to be that guy so bad. I want to be him so bad because it's almost like being Elvis' son. You want to be able to say, bring love just like he does. I still do. A lot of people, you know, look down on me for that. Think I'm proud of the things he's done. They think what they want to think. I'm at the age where I don't give a good damn what they think. I know my own heart. I don't, I'm not proud of the people he killed without a damn good reason, the people he killed because it's the wrong place at the wrong time. But I will tell you the truth, I don't hold it against him for killing snitches who want to play the game and never run tell it. Any more than I do a damn man you go into war with and he turns chicken shit and runs and you order to shoot him in the back. I don't I look at it the same thing. At age seventeen, Stoney too went to prison. His desire to be his father had now become the one thing that would truly keep them apart. And things would get worse for Billy in prison as well. He's about six foot tall. He might have weighed 170 pounds, slim guy. My daddy was real good to him because he was a kid. He'd buy him ice cream and stuff like that because the boy didn't have no money. And one day, on the third floor of Alto, he's in transition. And for one year, he stayed in Alto while he was in transition between Marion and Reedsville. Because Alto was a mass security prison, he was on the third tier floor, which meant they got a damn little hall about four foot wide between the cell and the rail. If your ass goes over that rail, you fall three stories straight down. So, you know, it's not for the faint of heart. They let two at a time so they could run up and down that one aisle on that floor for exercise. Well, on this particular time, he was sitting there with his legs crossed. He's playing poker with a buddy next door. And this guy, Philip Shepley, hell, he would be 18, 19 year old was jogging back forth behind him. And all of a sudden, on one of the paths, he just stopped, come out with a shank, and went to stabbing my father in the back with a second stab paralyzed my dad. All but one arm. And while that guy was continuing to stab at him, he was pulling himself to his cell to get to his bump, to get to his shank. All convicts have shanks. Nobody tells you no different. He might be a toothbrush sharpened, it might be a damn milk crate torn apart with ice pick. All have shanks. He said, as I laid my hand on that damn shank, 
his last lick went in my eye and it took my eyeball with him. He run, the guards got me, took the hospital, didn't think I was going to make it. The damn kid uh, just wanted to be, you know, I shot Jesse James. I killed Billy Burt. He's just a dumb kid. Wasn't more to it than that. Bert lost his eye in the attack and nearly died. He was in a coma for two weeks and several times was temporarily clinically dead. But while in this comatose state, Billy had another, much darker vision. Stoney tells this story, as he often does, through the eyes of his father. It was so bad to let your mother sit beside me because they didn't think I was going to make it. While I was out, all the people that I had ever killed before, now I ain't going to lie, I had killed a few people. He said they would come to my bed, be two or three, and they'd be laughing big. Ah, ha, ha, doing the hands this way. Waving, come on. Doing the hands this way, come on. Ah, ha, ha, laughing big, he said. He said, then three or four go away. Here come five or six more. Waving, come on, come on. Laughing big. He said, that went on and on and on. He said, but there was one out of all these people. They weren't laughing. He was had his hand saying, go back. You don't want to come. He said, nah, I stayed out for two weeks. During that time, he woke up and told Mama to pour water on his feet. Did she see them blue flames? There were blue flames coming off his feet. And she poured water on his feet, but it wouldn't hip it. He said, son, try to remember every woman that you ever kissed or made love to, especially my age. He said, you can't do it. You can go on and on, and in six months, you'll still be remembering one or two more. It's out of way when you kill so many people, especially when you do it for a job. Before I was stabbed up and, and died, I couldn't tell you five of the people I might have killed in my life. He said, but since that time, right now, he said, if 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 three people were to sit ahead in that little square at the door, I could recognize all three. I could tell you where I killed them and why. He said, and it's been that way ever since. And I don't know what it means. He thought just a minute. And he said, and? It made me wonder, are these people out there waiting on me or somewhere? If they are, I'm in damn big trouble, boys. Make me wonder what I'm going to say to them. I truly don't know what to make of that vision of Bert's. Was it some sort of near-death experience that opened up this long-lost part of his memory? Was he being spoken to again from some higher power? And if so... What was it trying to tell him? Either way, the experience seemed to have Bert shaken up. He began to read the Bible and, over time, truly come to realize the error of his ways and regret the choices he had made in life. It was far too late of a realization to save his life, but maybe there was still hope for his soul. And that hope would come from the most unlikely of places. 
Sheriff Earl Lee and Billy had formed a bond through their mutual desire to put Billy Wayne Davis away. That bond eventually turned to friendship. Sheriff Lee coming into my life, really the day my daddy was uh, sentenced to death. Now, Sheriff Lee was a real old man. He never breached that, not to my knowledge, nor to my dad's. And if you're a real lawman and you're a real gangster, you respect each other almost as much as you do the other gangster with that code. Because those kind of lawmen are just few and far between. They had a mutual respect for each other as who they were. Kind of like wider dog holiday, I guess. I don't know. Till the day he died, my daddy respected Sheriff Lee more than any man he ever knew. I remember when he did die in 1998. Next time I seen my father, we was talking there, and he just looked off sort of wistfully, and he said, you know, I think I lost the best friend I ever had. The friendship between a cold-blooded killer and the man who helped put him in prison is odd, to say the least. But it was sincere. The two men genuinely cared for one another. To the day Sheriff Lee died, and for the next 20 years, he never missed a Christmas bringing my mother at least $2,000 he took up from his own deputy's collections for the Burt children. He's our Santa Claus. He's the one that looked after us from afar. Even me, when I went out to try to be my daddy, let me spend a couple years. But he had his eye on me. And when he went to the parole board and said, look, this kid ain't mean, he's just dumb. You let him out, and I, I don't believe he'll be back in trouble. If he does, you got him for 20 years. That was the kind of man he was. In my entire life, I've never made a man as good as Sheriff Lee. I believe that with all my heart. And my daddy thought that too. I guess it's kind of like, what's the angel, Gabriel? Who, he was kind of like Gabriel in my eyes. It was an honor to know him. Even though Billy Bird had changed his outlook on life and come to truly regret the crimes and murders he had committed, he still had to pay the price. He was, after all, on death row. He had lost a string of appeals trials to have the death sentence overturned. And while young Stoney was still in prison, Billy Sunday Burt was set to be executed in the electric chair. I was an alto, and uh, this time I was in the, my job was in the uh, bakery. I hadn't made it to the butcher house, hadn't been there long enough. That night, when I come in from the bakery, I seen on TV, first thing I seen, this must have been a Tuesday night. Billy Burt lost his last pill. He scheduled to be executed at 7 o'clock Friday morning of that same week. It took me out. I went ballistic. I tried my best to maintain uh, some kind of uh, rational, mature, you know, stature about myself. I followed procedure. I went to the lieutenant. He said the prison policy don't cover nothing like that. I immediately went to the assistant warden. Prison policy don't cover anything like that. I was getting more and more upset. I was getting more and more psychotic. I was getting more and more threatening. I was telling him I can't take it. If I don't see my father before he's put to death, I'm not going to be able to handle it. I finally made it to the warden. He didn't give me time of day. Yes, policy. 
and I went ape shit. When I went ape shit, I told him, I said, you, Lieutenant Sims, you damn assistant, if my father dies before I see him, it might be 10 years, and it might be next day week the child, and I'll kill every one of you son of a bitches. I went ballistic. Hell, I just had turned 18. They took me straight to the hole. Four guards they took to get me there. As they put me in a cell, the chaplain of the prison was a few cells down talking to the inmate. I didn't know he was there. He heard me ranting and raving. He heard the coldest of the guards. I meant what I was saying. In my mind, they were some dead asses. Now, I ain't Billy Burke. They probably wouldn't have been. But in my mind, they would have been. That's how bad I was hurt. Now, this had to be an act of God. That preacher left there. I didn't know this later. He went straight to the warden. He said, I just heard something that has moved me, warden. He said, and you're wrong about prison policy. Prison policy has no policy concerning this. This is a first. There is no precedent for this. I want you to have the compassion to let that child see his father. He talked the warden into it. I didn't know it. I stayed psychotic all night. Next morning was a Wednesday. Four o'clock, they come got me. I thought this transferred me. Threatened to kill the warden. But he had two guards take me in a paddy wagon. The four-hour trip to Reesville, Georgia. We got there at eight o'clock. I remember that was the most deadly time in Alto and Reesville. They were two dying every week. And when he walked me in there, and I walked down that hall, headed to whatever cell that they was taking me to, I could feel the friction in the air. It was just hell on earth. You could feel it. And even then, I didn't know that I was going to visit my father. I thought they might have transferred me to Reesville. So he took me to a cell. And about 15 minutes later, brought my dad in and uncuffed us. He said, Bert, you got eight hours. For them eight hours, we <laughs> we talked about all the good times we'd had, all the things that I knew he didn't think I knew, all the things that he had seen me do that I never realized what made him think so much of me. It was just the most fantastic visit you'd ever seen. At about one o'clock, they brought us two big old chunks of ham. That was unheard of in prison. And two pieces of loaf bread and two cartons of milk. And I believe that might be the best meal we'd ever had together. Now, when they come to get me, to take me back to Alto, in my mind, I knew that he was going to be electrocuted in one more day. In other words, I got back out to him Wednesday night. I know they're going to lock me down. And the next morning, on Friday morning, he's been electrocuted at 7 o'clock. And he knew in his mind that I had 27 years. So the ward told me I had five minutes. We sort of lost all that bubbly uh, joy of being together. And it, it got uh, it got real. 
So when they come open the doors, we stood up. How I done it, I don't know. But we hugged and I always kissed him on the jaw. And he always kissed me on the head and bit me, called it head sugar. And told each other bye. And walked out of there without crying. They took me to the paddy bag and they took him back to the cell. All the way back, I didn't let this somebody just see me cry. I don't know where I found the strength. I don't know where it was adolescent stupidity or or strength. But in my mind, I was uh, I was, I was freaking out. But I kept a straight face, and I spent more time thinking about what he was thinking. Because I could see the pity in his eyes as I walked away. The pain that Stoney feels as he relives this memory is very real. He takes a few large swigs of whiskey to cope. They put me in the hole. And you know, it was 10 o'clock Friday morning before and the son of a bitch just had the these to come tell me that he had a state of execution. And I hated them so much to the day I left. It was me. In the Red Clay is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote and created the original music score. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Story editor is Jason Hoke. Produced and engineered by Shane Freeman, Jason Hoke, and myself. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Voice sessions recorded at Tree Sound Studios, Atlanta, Georgia. Archival footage licensed courtesy of Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia, and WSB-TV in Atlanta, Georgia. In the Red Clay is a 12-episode series with new episodes available every Tuesday. Follow us on Instagram at In the Red Clay Podcast. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you like the show, tell your friends and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.